All right, starting at first one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and had held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther again, now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's request. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to a banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Joel, and I'm the Assistant Minister at St. Stephen's. Uh, and it's a wonderful privilege to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, it would be great if you uh, could keep it open and, and follow along as we go. Why don't we uh, start by asking for God's help? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God uh, who speaks, uh, and not just who speaks, but who tells us the things we need to hear. Please, would you do that now as we look at your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, people make decisions all the time. Google tells me that the average person makes 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000. It hurts my head just uh, thinking about that. Uh, many decisions are of little significance, but some of the decisions we make uh, are life-changing. When it comes to important decisions, it can, be no, uh, it can be tricky to know what to do. Making decisions about whether we should work or not, where we should work, where should we live, where should we go to church, St. Stephen's every time, uh, whether we should ask someone out, where should we send our kids to school? What should we do with our spare time? 
And at times we can be a bit hasty uh, in our decision-making. We can forget to consult God, or we can turn to other places for guidance. Well, this morning's passage offers us a couple of useful reminders as we think about how we should make decisions as Christians. We had a week off Esther last week, as as Joel mentioned, but uh, as you heard, we're picking up in chapter five. And chapter five signals something of a change. Often in, in movies or novels, at the start, you, you race through some of the details at a, a decent pace. You get the background and it sets the scene, but then things slow down a bit and more detail is given. You go from looking at the big picture to kind of zooming in. And that's what seems to be happening in chapters five to seven of the book of Esther. Because the first four chapters take place over nine years. But these next few chapters take place over just two days. And so we see everything in more detail. And it makes sense for us to, to slow down a bit here. We could have looked at uh, chapters five to seven all together in one go. But I think we, we miss some of the detail and the richness uh, that it offers if we do that. So Esther's come to terms with the fact that her life is in the king's hands. And in verse one, she prepares to go before the king. I imagine she would have been incredibly nervous at this point. I mentioned last time that King Xerxes is erratic in his decision-making, uh, and his unpredictability would have been a cause of concern. But Esther knows what she has to do for her people as queen. But notice that she doesn't put on seductive clothes, as might have been the norm uh, when a woman went to see King Xerxes. She wears royal robes. She dresses like a queen, uh, like a queen as she goes to see the king. Imagine what's going through her mind. She's very vulnerable at this stage. It's life or death. But fortunately, the king shows her favor. He stretches out the gold scepter and Esther approaches and touches it. No doubt relieved that her life has been spared. Uh, and the king asked Esther, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom that will be given to you. She replies in verse four, if it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. And so you think, here we go. This is the moment. Esther has a plan and it's all about to unfold. She's got the king coming. She's got Haman. This is the moment where she's going to rescue her people. So the king and Haman go to the banquet uh, that Esther's put on and they're drinking wine and the king remembers why they're there. And so he asks Esther once again. Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And this is the second time that the king has offered Esther up to half the kingdom. I've got to say, it must have been pretty tempting to take the king's offer. The riches, the security, half of the Persian empire, all at your disposal. Sadly, Many of God's people have been lured in by much less over the years, dragged away from their responsibility to the people of God by the appeal of riches and security. And we're not immune to it, are we? The world has a habit of promising so much. It's tempting to go after worldly security rather than the everlasting security that we find in Jesus. As Christians, uh, it's often when we're feeling insecure 
about God's love for us uh, that we turn to the world for security. I wonder in what ways you're tempted to find security outside of God. What pulls you away from God's purposes for you? Something that's uh, worth us thinking about. While Esther doesn't get sucked in by the potential wealth on offer, she knows that God will deliver his people. But her response raises other questions. Uh, look at what she says in verses 7 and 8. This is the second time that she's had the chance to plead for the lives of her people. But once again, she stalls. And it makes you wonder whether Esther's all of a sudden got cold feet. Has she decided that it's too risky to ask? Maybe she doesn't think that Xerxes will say yes. There are a number of possibilities, and, and you might have some ideas about it as well. Uh, but I think there's a, a simple explanation. After organizing two banquets, the king's probably feeling very, very well appreciated. He's a man who, who clearly cares about how things appear. Esther honors him by hosting these banquets, and so the chances of him saying yes to her requests uh, are not going to be harmed by this. If you're someone who, uh, show, if someone shows you hospitality, maybe you're more likely to return the favor. And so Esther seems to use this to her advantage. Now at this point uh, in verse nine, there's a bit of a shift that takes place. So we shift from looking at Esther to now looking at Haman. And he's a man who's on top of the world. And why wouldn't he be? He's getting special treatment. He's got a spring in his step. Nothing can bring him down. Except seeing Mordecai sitting at the gate. In chapter three, the problem was that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. This time, Haman is angry because Mordecai won't rise up in his presence. And he doesn't fear Haman. There are some people in life who will be hostile towards God's people, regardless of what they do. Haman is outraged, but in a rare display, he shows some self-control. He probably would have liked to kill Mordecai right there on the spot. So much is his hatred, uh, his hatred towards him. But he restrains himself and he takes himself home. And he has a bit of a gathering and he invites his friends uh, and his wife's there as well. And he proceeds to tell them about how great he is. Imagine having a, a friend like Haman. It'll be a pretty tough gig, I think. He tells them about his wealth, about his many sons, about, uh, which obviously means many descendants, about his rank, the fact that he's more important than others. He tells them that he was the only one invited by Esther to join the king at these two banquets. He's absolutely insufferable. But then he explains to them his Mordecai situation. And it becomes clear that these people aren't just there to praise him, but also to come up with a solution. They gather around him and listen to this unbearable situation that he's in. And rather than telling him that it's actually not that big a deal uh, and, and risking making him more angry, they offer this advice, this advice instead. Verse 14. Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to dinner and be happy. Don't wait until the, the 12th month, which you'll remember was when Haman had planned to have all the Jews killed. Do something about it now. 
Now, a gallows was like a, a big frame that they used to hang people on, uh, but they were never 75 feet high. That's roughly uh, 23 meters, which is absolutely huge. Uh, if you round up my height just, just a little bit, uh, I'd be two meters tall to the nearest meter, just. Uh, and so imagine 11 people, my height, standing on top of each other. And the gallows, they've been even bigger than that. It's excessive, it's unnecessary, a bit like that illustration. But it's exactly what a guy like Haman wants to hear, exactly what he wants to hear. A man who has so much and can still, and can still say, I am unsatisfied. A man who is desperate for others to acknowledge his greatness. At 75 feet high, everyone would be able to see the man who refused to honor and fear Haman, put to death. You could probably see it from anywhere in the city. Haman will make an example of Mordecai. Unsurprisingly, Haman sound, uh, likes the sound of this idea and the gallows are built. And so we end the chapter wondering whether Esther has been too slow in asking for mercy and whether Haman will finally put an end to Mordecai. Let's take a moment to consider how God's word is actually speaking to us this morning. Uh, and I think the place to start is to think about how we make decisions as God's people. See, Esther and Mordecai are like chalk and cheese in their decision-making. And the Bible has a lot more to say than just this passage in terms of how we should make decisions. But there are a couple of things here that are good for us uh, to think about. The first thing to notice about Esther in this chapter is that her decision-making includes considering the needs of others. She's doing what's best for others at a potential cost to herself. It's very different to the way that Haman operates, isn't it? Haman's decisions are all based around honoring himself, people honoring him. If Haman decides to do something, uh, you can be absolutely sure it'll be for his own benefit. But he's also desperate for others to acknowledge all that he's done. You wonder how many times his, his wife and his friends have heard the same stories about how great he is. And it's worth us uh, thinking about Haman's desire for others to recognize and praise him. Because it's something that you see in churches from time to time. If we're honest, maybe it's even something that we see in ourselves. This desire can cause people to act in ungodly ways, almost demanding recognition for all that they do. Or it can cause people to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And it's that second thing, doing the right things for the wrong reasons, uh, that we need to be particularly careful of, especially as we serve others. Because our hearts are deceptive. God's word tells us that clearly. Most of us are, are a lot more subtle than Haman. So it's good for us to check our motives for doing things uh, from time to time. Are we doing things for the benefit of others and to bring God glory? Or so that people will give us the recognition that we so desperately crave? Well, let's be those who take our cue from Jesus serving others uh, for their benefit and not our own. Well, another thing to notice is that Esther is very patient in her decision-making. 
She's willing to bide her time. In fact, it's, it's actually not till chapter seven that she ends up asking the king for mercy. And when it comes to decision-making, most of us are usually looking for a quick fix. Uh, we want to resolve things right now. We want to make this decision and then move on to the next one. When it comes to waiting, we're not that great, are we? I think we, we see that pretty clearly at the moment. You can almost feel uh, the frustration reverberate around the South Island after the lockdown announcement on Friday. I certainly recognize my own impatience. Sometimes our, our lack of patience leads us to make unwise decisions out of frustration, discontentment, anger, annoyance. Esther shows incredible patience in this chapter. She shows us another way, that perhaps there's wisdom in not rushing into making decisions without being considered. And her willingness to be patient shows that she's now trusting God. There's a difference between Esther at the start of chapter four and Queen Esther in chapter five. Now, at this point, uh, she doesn't know how things will turn out. Uh, and as a church, uh, we also face some uncertainty about the future. We're aware that there are some big decisions uh, to make in the coming weeks and months and, and even years. A new minister, maybe a new building at some stage, but even sooner than that. What will our church services look like in the coming weeks? What about our midweek ministries? How will we maintain fellowship and care for each other if we're still isolated? Uh, we saw last time that Esther and the Jewish people said that they would devote three days to fasting and probably praying as well before she even approached the king. And I think that there's a, there's, there's a sense in that uh, in which her actions in this chapter reflect a person who is trusting God, a person who knows that others are praying to God on her behalf. She's not hasty in what she says or does. She's measured. She's willing to wait for the right moment to plead for her people. And so there's an encouragement here for us to hold each other up in prayer, to commit things to God. Pray for the staff uh, and for the vestry as we make decisions about when we can meet going forward. Pray for the parish nominators and their task of finding us a new vicar. Pray for those on the building committee as they look for a suitable building site uh, for us to use in the future. Committing things to God is so important uh, when it comes to making decisions. And it's not just as a church, but also at an individual level. If you find yourself struggling to do that and to trust God, and can I encourage you to, to remember what God is like? He's not like King Xerxes. When you approach Xerxes' throne, you don't know whether he'll accept you or not. You're never, you're never sure whether he's going to extend that gold scepter to you. But when we approach the throne of God through faith in Jesus, he will always welcome us. We know he cares for us deeply despite all the poor decisions we've ever made and continue to make. We don't need royal robes to approach him. We have Christ's blood shed on our behalf, making us acceptable in God's sight. So come to God when you're making decisions. Trust him with them.
Maybe you're someone who isn't yet trusting God. As far as decision-making goes, uh, trusting him is one of the best decisions that you could ever make. Trust the one who knows what you need. Haman certainly didn't understand that. He's not interested in trusting God. He listens to his wife and his friends, uh, which Lilia tells me is a good thing to do. Listen to your wife. Listen to your friends. Great things to be doing. But Haman's problem is that his wife and his friends just tell him what he wants to hear. 23 meter gallows. Kill Mordecai in the morning. Enjoy a banquet with the king in the evening. Be happy. Your happiness is what matters. But they don't tell Haman when he's out of line. We're pretty good at uh, surrounding ourselves with people who will tell us what we want to hear. But as Christians, we should also be willing to listen to those who tell us what we need to hear. Mordecai did that with Esther in chapter 4. Are you someone who has godly voices around you who can help you when it comes uh, to making important decisions? Because as Christians, we ought to be thoughtful about the decisions that we make. We ought to talk, talk things through with other Christians. Uh, and I'm sure that a, a number of us are, are doing that. Long may that continue. Well, as we close, uh, we're not sure how, how long our, our lockdown is going to last. Maybe this is the opportunity we need uh, to think about our decision making. We are the body of Christ. Are we making decisions for the benefit of the rest of the body? Patiently waiting on God. Committing our plans to him. Trusting him. Seeking godly counsel as we go. Because we know that he is working for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we are not alone in our decision making. We have you, our wonderful counsellor, guiding us. Please help us to, to turn to you when we make important decisions, because we know you have our best interests at heart. We pray these things uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.